Well, Justin, when you thought we were done, wait, there's more. We have one, one more sermon uh, dealing with a healthy church. If you don't like that, you can blame my wife. Um, she said, well, don't you think you should do a message where you review everything? And so I said, well, I guess I'll do that. So, so it's, it's her fault. Blame her. Um, no, it would be the Lord's fault because I really felt like convicted that I, that I should do that. And so we uh, are going to have one more message on a healthy church. Over the course of the last 10 weeks, we've taken the time to look at the, the marks of a healthy church. Um, what you perhaps did not realize is this series actually began way before then when I started taking us through the book of Hebrews which uh, started on September 17th, 2017. Started taking us through the book of Hebrews partially because that book was so rich in theology and I knew it would give an opportunity to talk about the church and the supremacy of Christ over the church and finally making our way to Hebrews chapter 13 where I spoke about a community of love, being content, false teaching, living a lifestyle of a sacrifice of praise, responding right to leaders, and then leadership responsibilities. After Hebrews, I launched into a series going over our mission as a church, which we called the state of the church. Then immediately following that, I intentionally launched into the book of Haggai. If you remember from that book, chapter 1 was very hard-hitting, especially as we looked at verse 4, where it said, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while the house, while this house, meaning the house of God, lies in ruins? And in verse 9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. You see, there's a common theme beginning way back there in Hebrews in 2017. And that theme was the church. I wanted to expose us to God's word, allow God's word to convict and prompt and bring about change in the hearts of God's people, which I can never do. That's why I then took us through the marks of a healthy church. The goal, of course, being that we identify what the marks of a healthy church are And we then implement areas where we need improvement. And so this morning, we're going to look back over these nine marks, and I will briefly speak about them. I will share if I believe some changes need to be made to implement any of them. And now with that said, I understand that you may either agree or disagree as we go through that. You may say, yeah, pastor, I agree with that. I agree that we need to do that, or or, I don't agree with that. And that's fine. It's fine if you disagree. Just remember our main concern is not with um, popular opinion, but our main concern is that are we a biblical church, not necessarily catering to the opinions of men. So we're going to look at all of the messages in the Healthy Church series, and today um, we're going to go through those and, and look at them. I would like us to look at uh, the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We use that kind of as our text um, as we 
talk about the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 18 through 21. This is the Word of God. May we hear it. May we heed it. May we apply it to our lives in every way, shape, and form. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 through 21. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, there would be where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. And we will stop there. What is a healthy church? We spoke about that in an introduction type of form. Then we looked at expositional preaching, biblical theology, the gospel, conversion, evangelism, membership, discipline, discipleship, and growth, deacons, and ended with elders. But what is a healthy church? Very first message. We just asked that question. Use Proverbs chapter 28 or 29 verse 18 as the as the text to launch into the series and launch this message where there is no prophetic vision the people will cast off restraint but blessed is he who keeps the law the goal was that we need to have some sort of vision in order to be a healthy church if we want to be healthy then we must know what a healthy church looks like now there were several things that we looked at in that message, including what is a Christian. I said a Christian is someone who has been first and foremost forgiven and reconciled to God. This happens when someone repents of their sin and places their trust in the perfect substitutionary death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We said there is a second aspect to that as well, and that is that as a Christian is someone who by their very virtue of being reconciled to God in Christ has also been reconciled then to God's people. Meaning that all Christians are reconciled to one another and they are part of God's family. Never does the New Testament ever conceive of a Christian existing in any prolonged basis outside the fellowship of the church. The church is not really a place, but the church is a people, and specifically God's people in Christ. Therefore, everyone who is a Christian needs to be a member of a local church. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for we, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let us not give up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but let us encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of this truth, no sacrifice for sin is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Hebrews 10, 23-27. Churches is a people, not a place. The church is a blood-bought people of God. Yes, we gather into a building like we've done 
today, but the building is not the church. The people are the church, and as Christians, we have this responsibility to love and to serve and to encourage and to hold accountable the rest of our church family. Now, because we are a church that's made up of Christians that have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, we should aspire to be a healthy church that displays the character of God to a lost and dying world. That character is revealed to us in the Word of God. And so I said we are a group of rebels that have been pardoned by the blood of Jesus Christ whom God wants to use to display His glory before all heavenly hosts because they speak the truth about Him and they look more and more like Him living as a holy, loving, and united community of believers. Where there is no prophetic vision, the people will cast off restraint. So with all that... Our desire as a church shouldn't just be mere existence, just to meet the status quo, just to say, hey, here we are, we exist. It should not be, oh, I came to church as a person and I I did my thing in church and now I go home and I do what I want and live however I want. The Christian is not called to live like heaven on Sunday and live like hell the rest of the week. That's not the call. So our desire should be to be a healthy church and our attitude for that should be that we do whatever it takes. And so we embarked on this journey together to say, hey, whatever it takes is what we need to do in order to be a healthy church. And so the first mark that we looked at in that series was expositional preaching expositional preaching and what that does is it makes the word of god it takes god's word the bible and it makes it central to the sermon so to put it simply expositional preaching is the type of preaching that exposes to us the word of god and so as part of the church you're listening to the word of god not the opinion of man it takes a particular passage of scripture it explains that passage of scripture and then applies the meaning of that passage to the life of the congregation it's the kind of preaching most geared to get at what god says to his people as well as those who are not his people a commitment to expo- expositional preaching is a commitment to hear the word of god now it's important to note that expositional preaching presumes a few things one it presumes that his people should hear the word of god and two it presumes that they need to hear the word of god lest our congregations be deprived of what god intends to use for the shaping us into his image it presumes that god intends the church to learn from both testaments as well as from every genre of scripture the law the history wisdom prophecy the gospels the epistles every pastor's ministry should be characterized by the submission to the word of God additionally the congregation has the final responsibility you as a church have the final responsibility in what happens in the church and therefore you should be ensuring that any pastor that preaches fundamentally preaches expositionally and so we said God's people have always been created by God's word. 
from creation, way back in Genesis chapter 1. He spoke the word and created to the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 2, from the vision of the valley of dry bones in Ezekiel chapter 37, to the coming of the living word, which was Jesus Christ. God has always created his people by his word. As Paul wrote in the book of Romans, faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ in Romans 10, 17. Or as he wrote to the church in Corinth, since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Sound expositional preaching is often the fountainhead of true growth in a church. Honestly, I believe when it comes to this mark, as a church, we're doing well. In other words, I believe that the preaching that goes on in our pulpit is primarily expositional. I can say that because I am the pastor, and I know that I preach expositionally. What I can't speak for is you. I can only speak for me. You know in your heart and whether, as a people, you desire expositional preaching. You know that whether you desire that or not. Here's what I would ask of you. I would ask that you would pray for me as a pastor, that I will commit myself to study the Word of God rigorously and carefully and earnestly, and that that you would pray that God will lead me to understand His Word and to apply it first to my own life and then to apply it wisely to the life of the church. Preaching is the fundamental component of pastoring. Don't be afraid even to speak words of encouragement to your pastor, telling them how their faithfulness to God's word has helped you grow in God's grace. And so I believe, for the most part, we're doing good on the first mark, expositional preaching. Let's move on, biblical theology. From expositional preaching, we move to biblical theology. So this is a move from being concerned with with how we are taught to being concerned with what we are taught. Without sound theology, we interpret verses of Scripture to mean whatever we want them to mean. It's important for us to note that pastors should teach sound doctrine, which is doctrine that is reliable, accurate, and faithful to Scripture, and the church is responsible for keeping their pastor accountable for sound doctrine. Every church must make a decision where it requires complete agreement on doctrine, where it permits limited disagreement, and where it allows complete liberty when it comes to doctrine. So the church can allow a disagreement over matters that are not necessary for salvation or for the practical life of the church. So, for example... We can say, well, we allow disagreement on the return of Christ. Because we don't know when he's coming back. We can also allow complete liberty in areas where the scripture is not clear. So, for example, a question that was asked of me by students at Super Summer, who do you think wrote the book of Hebrews? So we can allow for liberty. Someone might say, well, I believe Paul wrote it. And someone might say, well, I believe Barnabas wrote it. And someone might say, well, I believe Apollos wrote it. And, and we allow for liberty because we don't 
know who wrote it. Or armed resistance. You know, you may think armed resistance is okay, but someone else in the church may say, well, I don't believe in armed resistance. And that's okay. We allow for liberty in those areas. We don't say, well, the Bible says you shalt have, shall not have any armed resistance. We, we can't find a verse that says that. So the point is that the closer we get to the heart of our faith, the more we expect unity and understanding of our faith. The early church put it this way, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, diversity, and all things, charity. We have to understand that a church that is committed to sound teaching will commit to teaching the biblical doctrines that churches far too often neglect. So they will teach things like the doctrine of election, and they won't avoid it. They won't avoid the question, are people basically bad or good? Do they merely need encouragement and self-esteem, or do people need forgiveness and new life? What happens when someone becomes a Christian? Or, or if we are Christians, can we be sure that God will continue to care for us? If so, is his continuing care based on our faithfulness or based on his faithfulness? Those are important questions. If we are to be a church that displays God's character, then we should want to know everything that is revealed about himself in Scripture. And too often today, we have this consumer-driven and materialistic culture around us that encourages churches to understand the Spirit's works in terms of, of marketing. And, and they turn uh, to evangelism into advertising. God himself is made over into the image of man. In such times, a healthy church must be especially careful that praise for its leaders, that they would be biblical and experience, and have an experiential grasp of the sovereignty of God, that they would also pray that their leaders would remain fully committed to sound doctrine in its full and biblical glory. A healthy church is marked by expository preaching and biblical theology. Again, if I'm honest, I believe for the most part our church is doing well when it comes to biblical theology. We have some areas that we're working through when it comes to practice, but we have a solid biblical foundation. Moving on, we looked at the gospel. What is the gospel? It is vital for any church to have sound biblical theology in one important area, and that is our understanding of the gospel. The gospel is at the heart of Christianity. So it must be at the heart of our churches. A church gathers week after week after week after week to hear the gospel rehearsed again and again and again and again. A biblical understanding of the gospel must inform everything we do as a church. And so when we looked at this point several weeks ago, we listed some things that the gospel is not. We said the gospel is not the news that we're all okay. It's not the news that God is love. It's not the news that Jesus wants to be our friend. It's not the news that he has a wonderful plan or purpose for our life. The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ died on the cross as a sacrificial substitute for sinners, and that Jesus rose again, making a way for us to be reconciled to God. It's the news that the judge will become the father if we repent and believe. A good way to remember the gospel is four words, right? God, man, Christ, response. In other words, have I explained God as our holy and sovereign creator? God. So I explain God is holy and sovereign, and he is the creator. Have I made clear what humans, that as humans, we 
uh, our strange mixture, wonderfully made in God's image, yet we are horribly fallen, sinful, and separated from God. So we have God, he's holy, he's the creator. Man is sinful, and we've messed things up, and we are eternally separated from God. Have I explained who Jesus is and what he has done? That he is the God-man who uniquely and exclusively stands in between God and man as a substitute and resurrected Lord. So we have God and man, God holy. Man's messed everything up. Jesus Christ can fix everything up because he came and died for the sins of mankind. He paid the price. God's wrath was poured out on Jesus Christ for our sin. And finally, even if I've shared all this, have I clearly stated that a person must respond to the God? And so we take them through everything, and then we give them a chance to respond. You heard this message, and now you must turn from your life of self-centeredness and and sin to a life that wants to honor and praise and glorify God in your life. That's the gospel in four words. When we were talking about the gospel, I shared this quote from George Truitt, who was a great Christian leader of the past generation, the pastor of First Baptist Church, which was in Dallas, Texas. He said this, the supreme indictment that you can bring against a church is that a church lacks in passion and compassion for human souls. A church is nothing better than an ethical club if its sympathies for lost souls do not overflow, and if it does not go out to seek uh, to point lost souls to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. A healthy church knows the gospel, but a healthy church shares the gospel, right? We know it, but we share it. And so the question is, how are we doing as a church? Well, corporately, I think we're doing okay as a church, as a whole church. We know the gospel, and as a church, we share the gospel in meetings and doing things like the vacation Bible school and, and uh, the party, the, the community fun fest we have coming. We share the gospel corporately, but what about individually? How are you doing? Do you share the gospel individually? We must reclaim individual evangelism. Every day, when you're living your life, you must understand that you are on the mission field. Every day, every day, you wake up and you say, I'm on the mission field. I must search for ways to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with a lost and dying world that doesn't know the gospel. And my failure to do so is sinful. So corporately, we're doing okay. Individually, I'm not convinced that we are doing okay. Which is why at some point, we're going to launch the Who's Your One series where you will try to identify one person that you will commit to sharing the gospel with. So next, we looked at conversion. Conversion. And when we talked about conversion, we focused in on change and what does change mean. And I said that a healthy church is marked by a biblical understanding of conversion. And that in its simplest form, conversion is repentance and faith. Jesus, at the very beginning of his ministry, in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, said this, Repent and believe the good news. 
Right? It's not reciting a creed. It's not saying a prayer. It's not a conversation. It's not becoming a Westerner. It's not becoming an American. It's not even becoming a Republican. <gasps> oh, gasp. It's not reaching a certain age. It's not attending a class. It's not passing through some other rite of adulthood. It's not a journey. Everyone strolling along at some path at different points. Rather, conversion is turning with our whole lives from self-justification to Christ-justification, from self-rule of my life to God's rule of my life, from worshiping of idols to the worshiping of God. That's conversion. If we come to understand conversion as something that we have done apart from what God first does in us, then we don't really understand conversion. Yes, conversion includes our action, but it's so much more because we must have our hearts replaced, our minds transformed, our spirits given life, and we can't do any of that. Only God can do that. He must make us a new creation. We need God in order to have conversion. And when a church misunderstands conversion, it's very possible that the church is filled with people who have made pronouncements at one point in their lives of faith, but they have never experienced any radical change that the Bible calls conversion. In other words, it's entirely possible that the church ends up being filled with unregenerate church members. In other words, church members that don't really know Christ as their Savior. A correct understanding of conversion must show up in everything we do, including our expectations of church membership, as well as our unwillingness to view known sin lightly and accountability will take place as well as we encourage one another and even rebuke one another because we understand what conversion is. It means that you are no longer the person that you used to be, but you are now a person that is different than that old person because you are a new creation just like scripture says. Church discipline is then practice because we understand true conversion, that if you really are converted, you are not this person anymore. Understanding the Bible's presentation of conversion is one of the most important marks of a healthy church. And I would say that, I would say that our church probably has some work to do. Because I I believe we understand what conversion is. But I'm not sure we understand that it infiltrates every aspect of our life. We, we say, yeah, I know that I'm not the old person, but I'm not so sure that we understand that it infiltrates every aspect of our life to the point that we encourage accountability for all our church members as well as address sin in each other's lives. In fact, I would venture to guess that we never, if ever, really hold one another accountable and rebuke one another for sin. In fact, I expect if we took a poll and asked you when was the last time you rebuked a church member for sin, many of us would probably say never. Let's just take one sin that I know for sure happens. That's the sin of gossip. That's just one sin. I know it happens. It it happens in our church at times. 
I know it happens because sometimes it gets back to me, right? Usually no names are attached to it. Rarely do we ever hear of anyone addressing the sin of gossip. In fact, I have yet to hear anyone come to me and say, Pastor, so-and-so was saying whatever. They were gossiping about you or the church or whatever, and I rebuked them. It doesn't happen that way, right? Because we like to hear it. And I'm saying that, that when sin happens in the life of our church and with other church members that say, hey, I'm converted, I'm no longer this person, then we hold one another accountable to no longer be that person. We say, no, brother, sister, I'm, I'm not going to hear that. That's gossip. You're, you're saying something about someone else, whether it be true or not, you're trying to bring them down. So gossip's not just about being true. It's about saying something about someone to bring them down into that person's eyes. So they're like, so they think less of them, if that makes sense to you. Right? So I would say, as a church, we have some work to do. Because conversion means that we understand that God has changed us. And that we desire to live that way. And that we desire to hold one another accountable to live that way. Next, we looked at evangelism. Evangelism. So when we talked about evangelism, we took a few minutes to talk about unhealthy churches. And I said an unhealthy church is where the sermons often veer into cliche and repetition. Worse yet, they become moralistic and me-centered. And the gospel is recast as a little more than a spiritual self-help thing. Conversion is viewed as an act of human resolve. If, if I can do this, then, then I can do it. You know, I can change myself. And by varying degrees from bad to worse, the culture of the church is indistinguishable from the secular culture surrounding it. So in other words, the church inside the culture of the church looks just like the rest of the world. As a church, we must herald the news of salvation in Jesus Christ. Evangelism is not convincing someone to make a verbal confession one thing I talked about as churches is having an inflated membership to attendance ratio. So a church having 200 members but only 60 people in attendance. And I said, we should ask why. Why evangelism produces such a large number of members we never see, yet you feel secure in their salvation. They would say, yeah, I'm saved even though I never go to church or I never attend church. I'm a member of, of this church. What did we tell them that discipleship in Christ means? What did we teach them about God and sin and the world? Evangelism is not about doing all we can to get people to make a decision for Jesus. And it's not imposing our views on anyone. Instead, we're called to plead with and even persuade unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 5.11. Yes, we are to, to do so by setting forth the truth plainly, which means renouncing the secret and shameful ways, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. I also said that evangelism is not sharing your testimony, nor is it giving a defense of the faith, nor is it doing good works of charity. Those things can accompany evangelism, but they are not evangelism in and of themselves. Evangelism is faithfully presenting the good news that Christ, by his death and resurrection, has secured a way for a holy God and a sinful people to be reconciled together. God will produce true conversions when we present this good 
news. In short, evangelism is presenting the good news freely and trusting that God will convert people. Salvation comes from the Lord. So we should attempt to convey three things to people about this decision, about the gospel. We said, can it, can it tell them that the decision is costly, so you have to carefully consider it. Tell them that it's urgent, so they must make it soon. Tell them that it's worth it, that they want to make it. This is the message that we need to communicate personally to family and to friends and to people we know. This is the message that we communicate corporately as a church. Again, corporately as a church, I believe we're doing okay when it comes to evangelism. We can do better, but we are working towards doing better. But I stress once again that we must reclaim personal evangelism. We need to personally share the gospel of Jesus Christ and trust the results to Him. And I would venture to guess we struggle. We struggle. We just struggle with personal evangelism. Next, we looked at church membership. Church membership. And we talked about in order to be a member of a church, we are part of a covenant community of believers. I printed out for us our current church covenant, which we do not require anyone to sign. But I also proposed a new church covenant, which we should require people to sign. We talked about how the early church knew who belonged to their assemblies and who did not. We looked at how Paul told the Corinthian church to exclude a man from their assembly because of, because of his sin. And I said, yeah, you can't uh, exclude someone if they are not included in the first place. And later, Paul seems to make reference to the same man and says the punishment inflicted on him by the majority. And stop and think again. You can only have a majority if there's a defined group of people. In this case, a defined church membership. The church is to draw a line in the sand or around themselves. The best they can to mark themselves off from the rest of the world. This means that we should both receive and dismiss individuals professing faith, that our church roles should be a reflection of a heavenly role. A temple has bricks, a flock has sheep, a vine has branches, and a body has members. In one sense, church membership begins when Christ saves us and makes us a member of his body. Yet his work must then be given expression in an actual local church. In that sense, church membership begins when we commit to a body of believers. Be, being a Christian means being joined to a church. Scripture clearly instructs us to assemble together. See, true practice of church membership is when Christians understand and do their responsibility to love and care for one another. By identifying ourselves with a particular local church, we are telling the church's pastors and other members, not just that we commit to them, but that we commit to them in the gathering and the giving and the prayer and the service. We are telling them to expect certain things from us to hold us accountable if we don't follow through. Joining a church is, a, is an act of saying, I am now your responsibility. When you join First Baptist Church, that's an act of you saying, I am now your responsibility, church, and you are now my responsibility. And that's countercultural. 
Even more, it's counter to our sinful nature. And uninvolved members confuse both real members and non-Christians about what it means to be a Christian. And the active members to uh, do the voluntary inactive members no service when they allow them to remain members of the church since membership is a church's corporate endorsement of a person's salvation. So what we're saying is that by calling someone a member of our church, we are saying that that individual has our church's endorsement as a Christian. We don't look for perfection. We look for humility and honesty. We should not allow people to hold on to membership for sentimental reasons. We should encourage people to join another church, if not ours, where they can be in a covenant community loving other people. I believe we have great, great work to do in this area. First, because many of our current members have no idea what our covenant even says. Secondly, because we're not really a covenant community. We should have a covenant that we ask people to sign, that we can hold people accountable to, and that we should remove those from our membership that are not actively attending our church instead of endorsing their salvation and pretending like we know they're saved and know how things are going in their life when we have no clue. Especially when we've not even seen them in some cases for years. Which leads us nicely to the next point. Discipline. Discipline. If we understand membership, then we will understand discipline. Because membership draws the line. Discipline helps the church stay true to the line. Church discipline in its narrow sense is the act of excluding someone who professes to be a Christian from membership in the church and participation in the Lord's Supper for serious unrepentant sin, sin they refuse to let go of. Matthew 18 gives us its general boundaries for the church discipline. It begins by addressing the sinning brother or sister in private. If the sinner repents, the process of discipline ends. If not, then we return a second time with another Christian. If he or she still doesn't repent, then as Jesus put it, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. That is like an outsider. The church must exercise judgment within itself to be redemptive, not vengeful. And we should not be surprised that God calls us to exercise certain forms of judgment or discipline within the church. We should be making it more difficult for people to join our churches and easier to exclude people. This is not to be mean, but we would do well to remember the path to life is a narrow path, not broad. We need to recover our divinely intended distinction from the world. Now, church discipline can be done poorly. We do not judge others for their motives. In other words, you don't try to judge someone's motive for doing something. We don't impute to them a motive either. And we don't judge in non-essential matters. Nor do we discipline to be vindictive, but loving and to demonstrate mercy. Biblical church discipline is simple obedience to God and a confession that we need help. We looked at five reasons for corrective church discipline. They were the good of the disciplined individual, 
other Christians as they see the danger of sin, the health of the church as a whole, the corporate witness of the church, and therefore non-Christians in the community and the glory of God, our holiness should reflect God's holiness. It should mean something to be a member of a church. And again, I think we have some work to do. In particular, I believe we have work to do in calling sin, sin. And calling one another to repentance. Additionally, I find no records anywhere in the history of our church where we've disciplined someone or removed someone from our roles for non-attendance. We have work to do. Next, we talked about discipleship and growth. I said some think that people can be a baby Christian their entire life. Growth is looked at as optional, and that should not be the case. Growth is a sign of life. A tree is alive if it grows. An animal is alive if it grows. I'm not talking about manageable statistics like attendance and baptisms and giving and membership. This kind of growth is tangible, yet such statistics fall short for true kingdom growth in what the New Testament describes. Growth is marked by an increase in godliness, and it's the job of the church to be a means of growing people in grace. We need mature believers in God's covenant community to be used as tools in God's hands to grow other people. When we allow unholy behavior to go unchecked, we only hurt the church and we do not honor Christ. And so I want to share with you something that I didn't give in the first message that I'm going to give to you today. It gives us some possibilities that we are growing as a church. So, if we're growing in numbers being called to missions. So somebody gets called to the mission field, and perhaps the conversation goes like this. I've enjoyed sharing the gospel with my neighbors from South America. I wonder if God is then calling me to the mission field. Or older members getting a fresh sense of their responsibility and evangelism and discipling younger members. So this is the way it looks. So older members of the church, some people would say, Preacher, I've been a member here for, I don't know, 30 years, right? So older members of the, I just pulled that out of the air, by the way. Older members of, of the church say, I have a responsibility to disciple younger members of the church. And it looks like this. You call them and you say, hey, why don't you come over for dinner? Younger members attending the funerals of older members out of love. So maybe a single man in their 20s is at a funeral of an older member and they say, it was so good to be taken in by Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so. They helped me so much in my faith. Increased praying in the church and more prayers centered on evangelism and ministry opportunities so prayers centered on evangelism and ministry opportunities I'm starting an evangelistic Bible study at work I need your prayer I'm a little nervous would the church pray about that I'm gonna I'm gonna be willing to do counseling at the community fun fest I need some prayer We're getting ready to do this event. Let's be in 
prayer about it. I'm getting ready to share the gospel with my neighbor or my coworker. Would you pray that they would hear me explain the gospel? Or I have already shared the gospel with this person or that person. Would you pray that the gospel would take root? More members sharing the gospel with outsiders. Less reliance among members on the church's programs and more spontaneous ministry activities arising from members. Hey, pastor, what would you think if so-and-so and I organized a Christmas tea for the ladies in the church as an evangelistic opportunity? Or, hey, pastor, I want to, I would like to organize this so that we could do some evangelism as the church. You know what this pastor is going to say? You go for it. You know what I don't like to hear? Hey, pastor, I think you should do this. Oh, well, that's nice. Informal gatherings among church members characterized by spiritual conversations, including an apparent willingness to confess sin while simultaneous pointing to the cross. Hey, brother, I'm really struggling with this sin in my life. Do you feel confident to go to someone in your church and say, Brother, sister, I'm struggling right now. I need prayer. Increase in sacrificial giving. Honey, how can we cut $50 from our monthly budget in order to support the ministry of the church because we spend this much money eating out or I spend this much money on... I just went to Starbucks yesterday and bought two drinks and it was 11 bucks. Praise the Lord that you all gave me some gift certificates because that's how I paid for it. I had a little gift card on my phone. But anyway, I was like, wow. That's why I don't go here and take it out of my own pocket. Increased fruits of the Spirit. Members making career sacrifices so that they can serve the church. Did you hear that, that this person turned down a promotion three times so they could continue devoting themselves to being an elder in the church? Husbands leading their wives sacrificially. Honey, what are some things that that I can do to make you feel more loved, to make you feel more understood? Wives submitting to their husbands. Sweetheart, what are some things I can do today that will make your life easier? Parents discipline their children in the faith. Tonight, let's pray for Christian workers in the country of wherever. Or tonight, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about what it means to be a follower of Christ. A corporate willingness to discipline unrepentant and public sin. A corporate love for an unrepentant sinner showing in the pursuit of him or her before discipline is ever enacted. You get on the phone, you call them up, you meet them in person. Hey, so-and-so, please, if you if you get this message, uh, I need to hear from you. Or, hey, I'm concerned, brother, sister, where you're, where you're going and what your life is or where your life is heading. That's just a few examples of what we should be looking for in our church. Say we have work to do. I pray that we've grown spiritually in the six years that I've pastored here. But I know we have work to do. And I can't do it for you. I have to trust that through the preaching of God's word, you want to see it happen. I got to hurry. Leaders, deacons. We looked at scriptures. 
point out the difference between deacon and elder. We looked at biblical qualifications. First Timothy chapter 3, we said they're dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy, sound in their faith and life. Husband and one wife, they manage their household well. I even launched into why I believe it's okay for a deacon to be a woman. And I waited for someone to be really upset with me after that sermon, but nobody ever said a thing to me. We looked at the responsibilities of a deacon. I said the church needs deacons to provide logistics and material support so that the leaders can focus on the Word of God and prayer. The New Testament makes it clear that deacons do not have to be able to teach and that the deacon is not a ruling or leading position in the church. I made 10 statements about deacons, which I'll repeat real quick. Statement one, a deacon is a believer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Statement two, a deacon is a qualified servant to the church of Jesus Christ. What a deacon is not. Statement three, a deacon is not a pastor or an elder. Statement four, a deacon is not a deliberating body of men. Statement five, a deacon is not an honorary position bestowed upon simply likable and friendly men. Statement six, a deacon is not a perpetual office in the church for unfaithful men. Deacons are called to serve the church. Statement seven, deacons serve the church by protecting the pastor's biblical priorities. Statement eight, deacons serve the church by pursuing ministries in the church. Statement nine, deacons serve the church by promoting the unity in the church. Statement 10, deacons serve the church by personalizing the gospel of the church or for the church of Jesus Christ. Then I said, what do people see in us? Because these qualifications for a deacon should be said of every every Christian. I believe we need some work done in this area. We have great deacons in our church, men I love very much. But I believe roles need to clearly be defined and have needed that for a very long time in our church. In fact, long before I ever became the pastor of this church, I believe we need to abide by what Scripture clearly shows us a deacon is, and then we make sure that we are staying in that realm. Otherwise, we're taking the role outside of what Scripture clearly defines a deacon is. Lastly, elders. This last one. God has gifted a certain man in the church with exemplary character, pastoral wisdom and gifts of teaching and if after prayer the church recognizes these things then he should be set apart as an elder of the church in Acts 6 deacons were appointed in Jerusalem the apostles called on the church to identify these men and to delegate these tasks to them this appears to be the division of labor between deacon and elder elders are devoted to prayer and the ministry of the word deacons help sustain the physical operations of the church elders are a gift to the church God is essentially saying I'm going to take several men from among you and set them aside to pray for you and to teach you about me I walked us through the history of elders. We looked at it. What is the history of them? We looked at passages of Scripture. Looked at 1 Corinthians 5 and 2 Corinthians 2, Galatians 1, Matthew 18. Elders are to lead, but to do so in the bounds of recognized by the church. And so elders and every other board or committee in a Baptist church operate in advisory capacity to the congregation. I also said that the pastor is an elder. But there should be a plurality of elders. Pastor needs to be able to share whenever possible and with people the responsibility of pastoring a local church with other men rooted in the congregation. Decisions involving the church but not requiring the attention of all members should fall not to the pastor alone but to the elders as a whole. Eldership is a biblical office that I hold as a pastor. I am the main 
preaching elder. However, I desire to work with a group of elders for the edification of the church where I can meet with and pray and talk with and make recommendations for deacons and committees and the whole church, and I need fellow workers. Eldership is a biblical idea with practical value. If implemented in the church, it would help me immensely. We have work to do. We have currently no elders other than me. Which in essence says we're not following a biblical model of what the, what's laid out. I want to do things biblically. I pray you do as well. This is where the rubber hits the road. Healthy churches, in fact, are churches where things are hard. It's where people obey the word of God. The sermon might be long, as today. The expectations might be high. The talk of sin will probably feel overdone to many people. The fellowship might even feel at least sometimes intrusive into your life. But that's a healthy church. The key is that we obey God's word increasingly. And if we increasingly reflect God's character, then it stands to reason that aspects of our lives, individually and corporately, that don't reflect God's character, are smudges on the mirror of that reflection, and they need to be polished out. Curves in the glass need to be flattened. That takes work. God, in His goodness, has called us to live out the Christian life together, where our love for one another reflects the grace of God. Relationships imply commitment. They imply that in the world, and they surely imply it in the Christian life. We are never meant to grow alone. I began this series by sharing with you my good friend George's shirt on the day he died. Semper reformanda. Always changing or always reforming. A healthy church knows the joy of real change. It knows the joy of broken shackles. It knows the joy of meaningful fellowship and true unity around salvation and worship. It knows the joy of Christ's love that is given. And oh, it wonderfully knows the joy of reflecting the glory of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and being transformed into His likeness. In the third commandment, God warned the people not to take His name in vain. And not just to use, that's not just to use His name as a curse word, but it applies to the church that we would not bear the name of Christ in such a way that our lives speak falsely about who Jesus is. And many churches are sick. Many mistake selfish gain for spiritual growth. They mistake emotion for worship. They treasure worldly acceptance instead of divine approval. The health of our church should concern you. It concerns our church that we display the character of God and His glorious gospel to all of creation. We bring the glory of God into the church. It's our responsibility and our privilege. Oh, may our church reflect the glorious character of God. Not our values, not our commitments, not our preferences, but the character of God. May we take the proper steps in the coming weeks and months and years to be a healthy church. And may God convict you to be a part of this journey and that we would go together and that we would see God create great change among us, semper reformanda, that we would always be changing. Is that you? Will you come along and say, Pastor, I want us to be a healthy church. Whatever it takes. 
maybe you're going to be the first elder or first few elders ever in this church. Who knows? Are you going to do whatever it takes? Or are we just going to be stuck with the status quo doing what we've always done and hope that it works out? Let's close a prayer.